Tonight, pulling back the curtain on a potential second Trump term, his plans for day one of his administration, plus his 2024 opponents facing off on the debate stage, the state of the race less than six weeks out from the Iowa caucus. And Kevin McCarthy officially stepping down, what his departure means amid chaos on Capitol Hill. Then pop megastar Taylor Swift named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Her global impact far beyond the charts as the 11th hour gets underway on this Wednesday night. Good evening once again. I'm Stephanie Rule at MSNBC headquarters here in New York City. Tonight, some of the Republicans running for president held their fourth and final debate before the Iowa caucuses, now less than six weeks away. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie came out swinging, facing off in Tuscaloosa, Alabama at a Trump-free event. Trump-free why? Because the former president was a no-show once again. But despite him not being there, things got heated and heated quickly. I am sick of Republicans who are not willing to stand up and fight back against what the left is doing to this country. And you have other candidates up here like Nikki Haley. She caves anytime the left comes after her, anytime the media comes after her. Aren't you too tight with the banks and the billionaires to win over the GOP's working class base? In reference to donors coming on board, look, we will take support from anybody we can take support from, but I have been a conservative fighter all my life. Nikki, you were bankrupt when you left the UN. After you left the UN, you became a military contractor, and now you're a multimillionaire. That math does not add up. It adds up to the fact that you are corrupt. We've had these three acting as if the race is between the four of us. The fifth guy, who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here, he is unfit to be president, and there is no bigger issue in this race, Megan, than Donald Trump. Were you saying that it's time to bomb Iran? No, I was not saying it's time to bomb Iran, but I will tell you, I dealt with Iran every day when I was at the United Nations, and they only respond to strength. Reject this myth that they've been selling you, that somebody had a cup of coffee stint at the U.N. and then makes eight million bucks after, has real foreign policy experience. It takes an outsider to see this through. Look at the blank expression. This is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So <laughs> shut up for a while. I want to say something else. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence, not her positions, her basic intelligence. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. So do everybody a favor. Just walk yourself off that stage. Enjoy a nice meal. Governor Christie asked last night in Iowa whether he would be a dictator if he wins a second term in office. Donald Trump quipped no, quote, except for day one, promising to seal the southern border. He has also pledged to begin the largest deportation operation in American history, saying that migrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. He has pledged to round up and expel an estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. What do you make of that plan? There's no mystery to what he wants to do. He started off his campaign by saying, I am your retribution. 
these three guys on the stage make it seem like his conduct is acceptable. Let me make it clear. His conduct is unacceptable. Your campaign is running ads showing Trump confused. And you have said he has, quote, lost the zip on his fastball. You seem to be saying Donald Trump is no longer mentally fit to be president. Is that what you think? Look, he, he is showing father time is undefeated. But let me just respond to some of the things there. Look, uh, the media is making a big deal about what he said about some of these comments. I would just remind people uh, that is not how he governed. He didn't even fire Dr. Fauci. He didn't fire Christopher Ray. He didn't clean up the swamp. The question was very direct. Is he fit to be president or isn't he? The rest of the speech is interesting, but completely non-responsive. We have an opportunity to nominate someone and elect someone for two terms who's going to be spitting nails on day one and for eight years so deliver you, you big results. We should think. not nominate somebody he won't who's, answer. Who's, who's almost 80 years old. Okay. He's afraid to answer. Here's my issue with all three of my other colleagues on this debate stage is all three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. I'm the only person That'll on the it, stage sir. who can Thank say you. these things. That's what it's going to take, not people who are licking his boots one time and now Monday okay. morning quarterbacking and criticizing when it's convenient. I told you they came out swinging. So let's get smarter with the help of our leadoff panel. We're going to talk about this night. NBC Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitali, who is lucky enough to be at the debate. MSNBC senior political analyst Matthew Dowd. He is also a former George W. Bush strategist and founder of Country Over Party. And Stuart Stevens is here, a veteran of the Mitt Romney and George W. Bush presidential campaigns. He's now with the Lincoln Project, his new book, Get It for the Holidays, The Conspiracy to End America. Five ways my old party is driving our democracy to autocracy. Okay, Matthew, I was told this debate, they are going to talk about Donald Trump. Every day this week, we keep hearing the threat of what a second term would look like, the looming idea of a dictator. Yet, it took 17 minutes into the debate and Chris Christie alone to be the only person to take on the one thing that matters, and the one thing keeping all of them from the nomination, Donald Trump. Well, I, I thought Chris Christie made an indictment of the other three as clear as anybody could make in this, which is, is they're too afraid and they won't do it. I thought it was fairly clear. And I don't I didn't see any of the three denying his indictment in this. What I don't understand and I haven't understood from the start of this race, and I would love Stewart's perspective on this, I don't understand why they think fighting for second is a win. I mean, that's what they seem to be doing. It's as if they want to lead the lollipop guild or the lullaby league, and that's what their goal is, and they're leaving the Wicked Witch of the West alone. I mean, that's they think by leading the lollipop guild, they're somehow won this race. They're all in Munchkin land. They haven't removed themselves from Munchkin land. That, that Chris Christie is the only one who's trying to step up and slay the Wicked Witch in the course of this. And he, he, he I mean, it's he's at two or three percent. He right now, he's not going anywhere. I don't understand Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivak Ramaswamy. I mean, he is Biff Tannen from Back to the Future without oh a person. <laughs> I mean, he is. He's Biff Tannen without a personality, and he's going nowhere. Probably not as athletic either. Stuart, weigh in here. I mean, I saw Mike Murphy's tweet uh, after the debate that said that was Chris Christie's best night. He should drop out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't get this. Um, you know, Chris Christie is the only one that is speaking the truth. Um, I worked for Chris Christie when both his governor's races and I was I was proud of him tonight. Um, 
the, the greatest threat to America isn't Muslims coming over the southern border. It's Donald Trump. That's obvious. And everybody should know that. And I just don't understand how someone like Nikki Haley, she can sound like some echoes of a party that, that I once joined, uh, particularly on foreign policy. But then she'll say that if Donald Trump is convicted of a felony for basically overthrowing the United States government, she'll support him. And I, I just don't understand why that is not disqualifying. I think it is disqualifying. And it kind of goes to the core of this, this cancer at the Republican Party, that it isn't addressing the number one issue in this country, which is the threat to democracy that Donald Trump and Trumpism faces. Ali, you're in the spin room. What are you hearing? What stood out? Look, I think that this is clearly the point in the race where you're starting to see the knives come out in a much more efficient fashion. Certainly, that was the case on the debate stage tonight. If you watched nothing else and knew nothing else about this race, you would know that Nikki Haley was the person on that stage that everyone wanted to take down. Of course, that's for obvious reasons. She's surging in the polls. But I want to echo what everyone else here is saying, which is that I appreciate Chris Christie reminding us that we're still on Earth A. The idea that Donald Trump is very much still in this race, very much still leading the pack, and you don't become president or even the nominee by coming in second in the primary. That's a real problem for all of these people on the stage, as is the fact that I think as much as it's stunning for us to watch Chris Christie be seen as out of step with his party for pointing out and criticizing the fact that their front runner is under multiple felony indictments and is facing multiple felony allegations in court, that puts Chris Christie out of step with the quote-unquote law and order Republican Party. That is stunning, but then I think it's also incumbent on us to remember the fact that as much as it's bizarre that the party doesn't want to seem to fix this or contend with their anti-small-D Democratic values, voters don't care. When I talk to them, those who are still hung up on the big lie don't care to hear the truth of that situation, that Trump actually lost the election. This is where the party is. And so Chris Christie is out of step with the party. And that is probably why people are saying he should drop out after that performance, because he's clearly not a nominee that represents where cons where Republicans are at right now. But that's a larger problem for the party itself. And it's the same one they've been contending with, frankly, since 2015 and 2016. Then, Matthew, what do you think Chris Christie's strategy is? I spoke to a big Chris Christie donor when he first uh, entered the race. I spoke to them recently and they said, listen, we don't expect him to get the nomination. We expect him to pull a Chris Christie and be a human wrecking ball, be, you know, the guy who goes for it and potentially clears a path for someone like Nikki Haley. And then he's in her good graces. Well, tonight we certainly saw him defending her every chance he could or, or most chances, certainly when it came to Vivek. What do you think Christie's game plan is? Well, you know, I, I, I have criticized Chris Christie in the past, and I've been on various things with Chris Christie in this, and I've been critical of his enabling of Donald Trump for too long. But I don't I don't I have to give him give him a praise for even though it's late coming to the table and telling the truth. And I think if the only purpose he serves is to get on a debate stage and tell the truth when everybody else won't is a good thing for our country. And because he's going to go on Fox News and he's going to go on News Nation, which is like an AI version of Fox News <laughs> with amateurs. I don't I didn't get the production of it. And my guess is not many Republican primary voters saw the debate because they couldn't find it on their cable list of where that channel actually was. Is Chris Christie is just like Liz Cheney in a different way 
it is trying to tell the truth to the American public. And, and Chris Christie is actually doing a really hard job, which is telling the truth to people that don't want to believe it. And that serves a purpose. It, he may not be successful personally. He's likely not going to be successful personally in this, but he's willing to take the booze, take the hits and tell the truth on stage when no one else is, is willing to do it. And I think that's a good thing. Then, then Stuart, where are his supporters? All of us can say, man, those George Bush Republicans, Republicans like the two of you and all these Republicans out there who are saying we need something new. We, we're, we're sick of this. We need to get away from Donald Trump. Aren't there more than two percent of Republican voters out there? Not many. <laughs> um, no, is the answer. Um, look, uh, you know, Chattanooga lost to Alabama 66 to 10 earlier in the season, and they had a better day in Tuscaloosa than the Republican Party tonight. Um, it, it, it just the party is just in a very, very bad place. Um, at the core of it is a refusal to acknowledge uh, the essence of democracy, which is somebody has to be willing to lose. And the Republican Party has decided, as the president says, that they're for democracy when they win and they're not when they lose. And, and I'm with Matthew. You know, I was incredibly disappointed when Chris Christie, uh, a guy I loved, endorsed Donald Trump. I mean, it, it, it broke my heart. But this is somebody who's up there speaking the truth. And I guess we have to meet people where they are in the moment. And if, if it wasn't for him up there, he's giving the party an alternative. And at least you can't say at the end of the day when they nominate Trump that there wasn't somebody up there who gave him another choice. And I think that's incredibly important for the country to see. And I think that uh, Donald Trump is going to lose this race and it's going to be part of this process of the Republican Party collapsing. He gave America another choice, but almost no Republicans wanted to make that choice. Um, Allie, for Nikki Haley tonight, did she put Ron DeSantis behind her and show people that she should be the person in second? Well, look, I think I can't she showed I people that. that she is. She is the person in second. That's kind of what she showed, right? You don't win anything by being in second. Like, I just think that we can't underscore that enough. But she showed that she's the person in second, at least right now, because everyone was attacking her. If you're DeSantis, you had to have a big night tonight. And I think that he more than held his own. His campaign has been hemorrhaging. Drama behind the scenes has been the mainstay narrative. It has not been him on the stump. In fact, there's still a problem with him on the stump connecting with voters. It's partly why you're seeing him continue to fall in the polls as people like Haley continue to surge. But I also think that Nikki Haley is someone, and you know me, I love to dig into gender dynamics on debate stages. It's fascinating to watch the only woman on the stage be the person who's drawing most of the attacks because most research would show you that women both have to stay above the fray because they can't be seen as too aggressive, but they're also expected to defend themselves and hold their own. So the fact that Governor Chris Christie jumped in and was able to sort of give her a little bit of a boost against Vivek Ramaswamy, that's actually deeply helpful in the way that voters will metabolize Haley, both as someone who is clearly intelligent, clearly has foreign policy chops, but also who has people on the stage who will act as her validators, even those who are her opponents. That being said, as someone who's watched Haley now for the better part of a year, she is someone who wasn't able to really capture her regular cadence of getting into her typical stump speech points. And that's problematic because it's clear that she was playing defense tonight. At the end of the day, though, again, I'm not sure how many people are going to be watching this debate. 
it's really happening in such a vacuum, especially because this isn't the real primary. It's a subsect of the primary. But as long as Donald Trump is not on that stage, he doesn't have to defend himself. He doesn't have to attack anyone. He really loses nothing. And frankly, the whole field needs him to lose something if they want these debates to mean anything. All right, Stuart, ready for this? I understand who Donald Trump's voter is. I understand who Nikki Haley's voter is. I understand who would back Chris Christie. Who is voting for Vivek Ramaswamy and who is picking Ron DeSantis? You know, they're both just weird guys. Um, These are not people who... uh, interact in a normal way <laughs> with, with but that's what I want to know what voter is saying that's my boy well look I think in the it's easier to answer for DeSantis you know there was a belief out there that um, he fit the model of uh, Republicans who have done well getting the nomination big state governors uh, Reagan uh, Bush Romney won the nomination the difference is you know he he really isn't like them he's, he's a big government. Uh, conservative. I mean, just think about it. Someone is running for president of the United States who was governor of a state and got in a fight with the happiness company and lost. I mean, how is that even possible? Um, And it it just is this ambition for ambition's sake. Um, At this point, the only reason this guy is running is because he thinks it would be really good to be president of the United States. He'd like that. He can't articulate anything beyond that. He's not likable. And Ramaswamy is just a nut. He's a conspiracy nut. And you saw that tonight. Um, He's a disgrace. I don't think the guy should be on the stage. Um, But, you know, he represents a certain part of the party that is also conspiracy nuts. So maybe he has a place. Wow. Conspiracy nuts, a certain contingent of the party. And we're all saying that with straight faces. Ali Vitale, Matthew Dowd, Stuart Stevens. Great to have you here. I always appreciate your analysis. We're also tracking some very, very serious news today. Breaking news in Las Vegas tonight. Another deadly shooting on a college campus. At least three people there have died at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Another victim is recovering in a hospital, and the suspect has been pronounced dead. Three law enforcement sources familiar with the investigation tell NBC News the suspect is a man in his 60s. At this point, there is no word on what his motive was. Police responded when someone heard gunfire at a campus building. Students and faculty sheltered in place for hours. We heard the clips of semi-automatic weapons just going for what felt like about 30 seconds. It was a very, very disturbing thing to hear. In a statement, President Biden said he was praying for families of the victims that, quote, and said this, this is not normal and we can never let it become normal. Here's the problem, though. It is. Coming up, after losing the gavel, Kevin McCarthy is now leaving the House altogether. Max Rose and Luke Broadwater are here on what is next for Congress as requirements, as retirements mount and gridlock continues. And later, the important lawsuit out of Texas on abortion. You need to hear about this one. Joyce Vance joins us to explain what exactly is going on and why it matters for abortion rights around this country. The 11th hour just getting underway on a very serious Wednesday night. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? 
Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. More Republican congressmen are heading for the exits, including the former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. He will leave at the end of the month. That means House Republicans can only afford to lose three votes without Democratic support to pass legislation. More than three dozen incumbents in Congress have announced they will not run for re-election, many blaming dysfunction on the Hill. Speaking of dysfunction, tonight, Senate Republicans and Bernie Sanders blocked a bill from advancing that included aid to Israel and Ukraine. Here to discuss, Luke Broadwater, Pulitzer Prize winning congressional reporter for The New York Times and former Democratic New York Congressman, my dear friend, Max Rose. Luke, tell us about Kevin McCarthy's decision to step down, because I will tell you, I read the news about this decision at about 1130 this morning and at 1145, I walked into a very fancy New York City lunch filled with fancy, fancy New York City businessmen and women. And guess who was there? Kevin. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I no, I don't think he's wasting a ton of time trying to get no, he's into not. the next phase of his career, which should prove to be much more lucrative than than being a member of Congress. That said, he's been he's been essentially miserable and depressed in Congress since he was kicked out as speaker. He's been sitting in his office with almost nothing to do. He uh, complains to everyone uh, about his what he views as the unfair treatment of him. Obviously, he's getting into scuffles with fellow Republicans in the halls. I mean, he's in a bad place on the Hill. And so it makes sense that he would want to get out of Congress, given, you know, the embarrassing way he was kicked out of out of power and the fact that he, you know, people who who he views as his inferiors were able to get the upper hand on him and and send him so low. Um, But, yeah, I mean, once you resign from Congress there, my understanding is there's a year prohibition on lobbying. And so this will will give him a a quicker start to start making money, uh, real, real heavy money before he can uh, before his term were to end. Max, do you think he's going to now spend his time on the outside going after his opponents? And I don't mean Democrats, Republicans who, as Luke said, he viewed as inferior, who took him out, who caused all these problems for him. He's got a ton of money in his super PAC. Is he going to use it to get them? No, in six weeks, he's going to be another Wall Street guy saying he's socially liberal and fiscally conservative. (laughs) I mean, and you know that type really well. I'm I'm familiar with them. (laughs) Look, the. 
Kevin McCarthy, 16 years in Congress, there was one consistent trait of his, which is he actually doesn't believe anything. And he always just thought about his political tomorrow, never any long term. It was just about himself. No core beliefs okay, whatsoever. Okay, there's a whole lot of people in Congress that fit in that category. None. I, I got to tell you, I served with the guy. I don't think there were any that rose to his level. But what we do see is that the world that he created, this world where the extremist Republican base is so empowered while Kevin's career is over, that lives on. Now, if you had told me at the beginning of this year that by January 1, 2024, Nancy Pelosi would still be in Congress serving with grace and respect and Kevin McCarthy would be retired, hanging out at Wall Street holiday functions, I never would have believed you, but th but this is politics. And this is where we are. Luke, when we hear now Republicans are going to have such a narrow majority, it's going to be so difficult for them to pass anything. They're not really trying to pass anything, though. Well, I mean, other than their their messaging bills that will, you know, have no chance of passing the Senate. I mean, you're seeing that play out with the border debate right now that you're and the and the funding for Ukraine and Israel, where House Republicans are insisting on their border bill, which not a single Democrat voted for in the Senate, they are in the House. They made no attempt to to find a bipartisan compromise in the House. But that is the line they're drawing for aid to Ukraine and Israel is this, uh, you know, a partisan bill that they've they've um, only the Republicans will vote for. So it, Yes, it's it's tougher for them to pass things, but are they really even trying to pass things with Democrats? And their their track record to date has been to simply pass those right wing bills that President Trump favors and that the hard right is in favor of. I want to talk about this this problem around getting more aid, whether it's Israel or Ukraine. And I want to share some comments we heard from Lindsey Graham. Watch this. What happens if Ukraine funding isn't passed this year? Uh, what happens if you can't pass funding to Ukraine this year? Then we'll take it up next year. Doesn't it become more complicated in an election year, especially with how I'm more worried about our border than Ukraine. You are? A hundred percent. Have you? It's not one or the other. Lindsey Graham was one of Ukraine's biggest supporters in Congress a year ago. What does that tell you? Lindsey Graham, you know, always moves with the extremist base of the Republican Party. Remember, this he didn't was always he didn't always. Well, when yeah. John McCain was alive. Yeah, no, he no, didn't. no. There, there was a brief moment where he criticized Donald Trump until he went back to. Yes, kissing there was his, a, a brief moment uh, right uh, after just, the insurrection. Just, just, just one, the day after that, uh, people yelled at him at an airport right, and then, then he, he said, forget back, it, forget back it, forget it. Yes, you're, yes, you're, yes, you're right. Yes, we yes. should give him credit. We should give him credit. No, but for earlier that. in his career. No, my, my point is, is that the modern day Lindsey Graham is a perfect litmus test for where the extremist base of the Republican Party actually is. And right now, that extremist base does, which controls the Republican Party, the MAGA movement does not care about the fight for democracy, does not care about democracy, period. In fact, their disdain for democracy leads them to actually disregard Israel, our supposed truly best ally abroad, the nation that we should care most about defending, that's using their words. But they hate 
democracy, and they want to stand with Putin, even if it means standing against Israel. It's disgraceful. Then what is your thought on Bernie Sanders? He came out against giving Israel billions of dollars without restrictions, and he's citing humanitarian conditions in Gaza. Uh, Look, I think Bernie Sanders' current stance, and I say this not just as a Democrat, a patriot, but also as a Jew, I think it's absolutely disgraceful. You know, I think that it establishes a false equivalency between Hamas, a terrorist organization, and Israel fighting to defend itself as, may I add, the only democracy in the region. Now, this is not to say that peace should not be pursued. And it's not to say that in every single possible instance, Israel should be attempting to display courageous restraint and upholding its values. But for him to stand up and do that today appealing to the Democratic Party's own extremist elements, I I think was a was a horrible stance to take. Max Rose, good to see you. Thank you for being here. Luke Broadwater, thank you so much. When we come back, a grim diagnosis for one woman in Texas and her baby. Now she's asking a court. Imagine this. She's amidst a horrible diagnosis about her unborn child. And now she's in court asking a court to let her end her pregnancy in a state with some of the strictest abortion laws. We're going to get into it and what it could mean for the whole country when the 11th hour continues. Now to Texas and a lawsuit we have not seen in this country in 50 years. A 31-year-old Dallas woman who is 20 weeks pregnant is suing the state so she can get an abortion. Her fetus was recently diagnosed with a condition that is almost always fatal. Her doctors say continuing the pregnancy could endanger her own health as well. Texas's abortion ban, of course, does have some exceptions for the life and the health of the pregnant woman, but many say they are legally unclear. Joining me now to discuss former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance, who spent 25 years as a federal prosecutor. Joyce, you and I are both mothers. I cannot imagine... Being 20 weeks pregnant, finding out a diagnosis like this and having to be in court to fight to to make decisions for my own health and, and my family's. How significant is this lawsuit? Yes, so the lawsuit is significant. The problem is an important one. This is what people mean when we hear them say that abortion is health care. This fetus has trisomy 18. Even if it survives until birth, it it will not have a life ahead of it. But the mother's health is at risk. She has underlying conditions that could be elevated, and it may well impair her ability to bear future children. She's got two little kids. She said she'd like to have a large family, but doctors have told her that this process is likely to lead to scarring that means that she won't be able to have another child. So instead of getting to make these decisions for herself with her husband and her doctor, she's forced to ask a state court judge in Travis County, Texas, for permission to make her own decisions about her medical care. It's demeaning, it's second-class citizenship, and in this case, it's the opposite of being pro-life. It's anti-life. How do you see this playing out legally in court? Well, Texas's courts and the state legislature, quite frankly, whose job it is, have to provide some clarity. Because here's the problem. This woman's doctor is looking at a law that says that he can provide an abortion if necessary for her health. 
But because that hasn't been spelled out, uh, any doctor who decides to perform an abortion does so at risk that they will be incarcerated, that they will be prosecuted, put in prison, fined, and lose their license to practice law. And even her husband is at risk. You'll recall stuff before there was Dobbs. There was Texas's SBA, the bill that allows vigilante justice and anyone, any place can go after her husband for helping her go out of state to get an abortion if that's what they decide to do. So I think even this Supreme Court, which has created this situation, will be forced when this issue reaches them to uh, tell states that they must provide clarity and certainty for people the problem is, how long will that take and how many more women will have to suffer before we get there? That's actually my next question. So here this woman is in court. The clock is ticking. How long How long does it take to make decisions like this for the court? I, you know, you would hope that courts would move speedily, but they don't always move quickly. And in fact, there's another case in state court in Texas um, brought by this woman's lawyers where they asked the state to declare that women in certain situations could get abortions. The state trial court level judge agreed with their request. Texas's attorney general appealed. That case is now tied up in the Texas Supreme Court. There is still no clarity for women in Texas. I am thinking about that woman, her children, her husband, all of their collective health. Joyce, thank you so much. A really, really important story. When we come back, in a time of polarization, there is one person that has brought us all together. She just snagged Times Person of the Year. We are talking Taylor Swift when the 11th Hour continues. Do I know where I'm going to be or even want to be in 20 years? Absolutely not. I tell myself, like, it's actually really ungrateful to just assume that you have 20 years, like be stoked that you have today. The girl on the bleachers, the mad woman and the mastermind. Those are just a few of the nicknames Taylor Swift has gone by during her career. And today she earned another one, a biggie. Time magazine officially crowned the pop megastar person of the year. Her massively popular Eras tour is not only on track to become the biggest global tour of all time, it also is the first ever to gross over $1 billion. And her childhood home state newspaper made sure to honor the moment with this amazing headline. Berks County woman named Times 2023 person of the year. Well, I'm going to bring on somebody pretty special, Brian West, the official Taylor Swift reporter. That is his job for USA Today Network. Brian, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk about today. I mean, we have had Beatlemania. We have had Elvis. But have we ever had anything like Taylor Swift? Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me on. Taylor Swift is entering her time person of the year era. And I would have to say, I don't think we have had somebody quite like Taylor. She is a complete powerful engine and a force that is only just picking up in momentum. She says in her concert, it's been a long time coming, but I think we're only just seeing the beginning. Let's talk about that because she has built a legacy to last, right? Her relationship with her fans and the loyalty they have to her, to put it in, to, to put it in her words, why does so many fade, but she's still here? 
If you look at just the past year of her massive impact, you could talk about the economy. So every city that she visits, there are millions of dollars that are poured in. You see mayors of these towns that are changing the name. In Glendale, Arizona, they called it Swift City for a couple of days while she was in town. She's being taught in the educational sector. Harvard's offering a class. More than 10 universities have decided to add her to their course catalog. Then you look at her as just an artist. She's one of the only artists who's written all of her own songs or collaborated with others. There's only one cover that she's done in her massive 200 plus discography. She's re-recording all of her albums. This past year, she re-recorded Speak Now, Taylor's version, and also 1989, Taylor's version. And that's because she wants ownership. So that's eight of 10 albums that she can now call her own. And then you look at this tour, like you said, it's estimated to make more than a billion dollars. She's already gone to 66 cities and next year is projected to go to 86 cities. And she still hasn't officially said if next year is the end of the tour, if it all ends in Canada. And I have been really impressed by what she did in the movie industry. So she bypassed production studios, went straight to a distributor, struck a deal, shattered the record, $100 million in pre-sales. And then there's the NFL. It's already super popular, has a ton of viewers, and somehow Taylor adds even more eyes to the NFL. I can't even believe that movie. I went to it. You walked in. There's a commemorative cup. There's a commemorative jumbo popcorn tub. And the movie itself didn't even have any behind-the-scenes footage. It was just a show, yet people are dancing in the aisles and loving every minute of it. I want to talk about the cover story. And they can't wait to watch it on on streaming as well, right? On her birthday, she's I've got a 10-year-old just, just waiting for it. I want to talk about this cover story because Taylor Swift is not without conflict, right? She's had huge conflicts, lots of high-profile people trying to take her down in her career, and she doesn't talk about them. In the cover story, she says she's not going to dignify it because she knows that trash takes itself out. Every time. That was one of my favorite lines that she said. This is why she's so popular among her fan base. She is unapologetically herself. To quote the 2023 Merriam-Webster uh, word of the year, she's authentic. And that's what fans love. She holds up a mirror to her vulnerability, her struggles, and how she's been able to rise from the ashes over and over in one of her songs um, that she just released on streaming, Stop, You're Losing Me. She says uh, that she's this phoenix that's constantly rising from the ashes. And that's just a point of relation that people really appreciate. That's why they're so excited for what's allegedly her next re-recorded album, Reputation, that's supposed to be coming out next. Let's talk about you for a moment. I'm get You got this job ahead of thousands of candidates, allegedly even someone whose job it was to cover the White House. I want to understand, what's your background? Were you a culture reporter before? Did you cover music? Did you cover sports? Did you cover politics? Because Taylor Swift spans it all. And now that you cover her, can you no longer be a Swifty? Because you got to be objective, brother. I'm really glad you're asking this question. So I'm a journalist first, and I'm a Taylor Swift fan second, but I do have the experience to back it up. I went to Northwestern University, the Medill School of Journalism. I then worked in newsrooms for more than a decade across the nation. I even interned at 30 Rock for the Today Show and NBC News. I've won awards like a DuPont, Murrow, and two Emmy Awards, and I have covered it all. There was a few years for in NBC at Phoenix that I covered breaking news, crime news, political news, 
everything and including the features. And that's actually how I got to meet Taylor. So during Reputation, the first time around, I was made fun of by the anchors for being a fan of Taylor at a time that she was coming back from her cancellation. And I sent that to her team and the team sent me back this box and said, Taylor would like to meet you. And so all of that combined allowed me to have this position. And what I really appreciate the most is I left news five years ago to focus on mental health and sobriety. I've been sober for five years and learned so many valuable lessons. And what I truly see is this is the amalgamation of all of my crossroads coming together, important life lessons that have allowed me to have this opportunity. Well, rock on. Uh, Congratulations. And what a beat to have. Brian West, thank you for joining us. And of course, congratulations to Taylor. When we come back, he brought the humor to tough topics and changed the face of television. We remember the great Norman Lear when the 11th hour continues. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. about your legacy? You know, I'm forced to think about it because people are asking me. I would say he mattered, but only if I could help people understand that's true of all of us. Every day is another production. Did you see the size of that sandwich? The last thing before we go tonight, remembering TV legend Norman Lear. The groundbreaking sitcom creator has died at the miraculous age of 101. My colleague and friend Joe Fryer has more on his incredible legacy. Norman Lear made the small screen bigger. We are the Jeffersons. Stretching TV's boundaries to share new stories. And project new voices. I have never been in a situation in my life, however tragic, where I didn't see some comedy. He built the foundation for his TV empire in the 70s with All in the Family. You are a meathead. (laughs) The groundbreaking show used humor to tackle hot-button issues like race. One, two, three. (laughs) Well, its spinoff, Maude, addressed abortion months before the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade. Just tell me, Walter, that I'm doing the right thing, not having the baby. With shows like Sanford and Son, Lear depicted life for black Americans. Family dealing with poverty and good times. A successful couple in the Jeffersons. How can you afford to live in a place like this? You ain't tall enough to be no basketball player. A vocal opponent of the religious right, in the 80s, Lear created a nonprofit called People for the American Way. Don't tell us we're bad Christians or good Christians, depending on our political points of view. That isn't the American way. Age never slowed him down. In his mid-90s, he rebooted a classic series, One Day at a Time, with a Latino family. I spoke with him in 2021. I've had as good a time in this business as anybody has ever had in any business ever. And I love it. 
Today, All in the Family star Rob Reiner paid tribute. I love Norman Lear with all my heart. He was my second father. And from Judd Apatow, Norman Lear changed the world. Joe Fryer, NBC News. And luckily, we will never, ever forget the great Norman Lear. And on that note, I wish you a very good night. From all of our colleagues across the networks of NBC News, thanks for staying up late with me. I'll see you at the end of tomorrow. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.